Stop the presses. Pull out the front page. Stand by for a replay. Yeah, it's those two guys from Milwaukee. Oh, those two guys from Milwaukee. Here we go again. It's those two guys from Milwaukee. Welcome to Unknown Orbits, the podcast in which two writers discuss everything science fiction from Gernsbach to Roddenberry. Welcome to episode 56 of Unknown Orbits. Have Spacesuit Will Travel by Robert Heinland and Tarzan at the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Today we're going to be doing a double review of two different books. We have a reason for doing so, which we'll explain in a little bit. But let's start out with my selection, Tarzan at the Earth's Core. In this book, which is a crossover between Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan books, obviously, and the Pellucidar books, which is the At the Earth's Core series that Edgar Rice Burroughs did. This is the fourth book in the Pellucidar series and the 13th book in the Tarzan series published in 1929. So in this story, Tarzan joins an expedition to rescue David Eines, who is the protagonist of At the Earth's Core, from the Corsars. And the Corsars are pirates. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Pellucidar books, it takes place at the Earth's Core, which is a hollowed-out center of the Earth with its own sun floating in the middle of it. So it's always day, there's no night. It's a land filled with dinosaurs and prehistoric beasts and pirates, believe it or not. It's pretty wild. So a state-of-the-art airship is built, manned by Germans. Of course. This is 1929, so these are friendly Germans, more or less. They take this airship and they fly through a hole in the Arctic crust into the inner earth. And Tarzan brings along his brave and noble Waziri warriors. These are African warriors modeled on the Zulu. They land in the inner earth and they are separated. Tarzan and his warriors go one way and another character in the book, Jason Gridley, is separated and goes his way. And basically the rest of the book is fighting dinosaurs and evil corsars and a number of threats. Jason Gridley falls in love with a beautiful cave woman. She helps him, rescues him, and Tarzan has his battles, and they all join up in the end, and they rescue David Ines, and everybody lives happily ever after. As you might have guessed, it's kind of a strange book. The idea of Tarzan fighting dinosaurs is, I think, a brilliant idea but a little odd. But if you are familiar with the Tarzan books, there were some fairly odd books in the Tarzan series. I think he fought like Amazon women at one point. He went up against a race of pygmies at another point, especially as the series got a little further along. And I'm assuming Edgar Rice Burroughs was running out of ideas. There were some really unusual books written. You know, I've seen that in other series, too. I think I mentioned, in fact, we did a partial episode on Hugh Walters, the series of young adult books, and he ended up getting really weird around the 20th book. Yeah, that's a pretty long series, 20 books. I'm sure the Tarzan books got close to 20 or past 20 as well. So to give a little further 
background on Tarzan at the Earth's Core. It was adapted in a Gold Key comic in 1969. Now, we've talked about Gold Key comics before. Interesting beginning. Yeah, it's here in Wisconsin. It's a local company, Western Publishing. The interesting thing for me about that adaptation was that it was drawn by Doug Wildey. Doug Wildey is the artist who was responsible for helping to create Johnny Quest. So that's a double connection for me. I loved Johnny Quest when I was young. There was a Tarzan Lord of the Jungle series in the 1970s, which was made by Filmation, which is the same company that made the Star Trek animated TV show. Oh, the cartoon. Yeah. You and I watched the episode Tarzan at the Earth's Core, or at least part of it last night. We we tried. We tried to watch it. It was terrible. The only thing it had in common with the actual story was that there were dinosaurs in it. What I like about cartoons of that era is almost universally they would take something popular like Gilligan's Island became a cartoon and someone somewhere would insist, okay, we have to add a monkey now. Yeah, there always has to be a funny monkey added to the show and Tarzan had a funny monkey companion. That is not recommended to anyone who's a fan of the book. And then apparently in the 1990s, there was Tarzan versus Predator at the Earth's core. You're kidding me. Uh, Which... Again, kind of makes a certain amount of twisted sense. Now, that was a comic? That was a comic book. I've not read that. I just found out about it a few days ago. So maybe I'll I'll look that up and see if I can get a copy. Does this mean we're going to eventually get Tarzan in Middle Earth? You mean like Lord of the Rings Middle Earth? Yes, I wouldn't be surprised. Let me think about that for a second. He lands in Hobbit Town by some portal. I don't know. How else would you get to Middle Earth? Time travel, I suppose. I don't know if they've ever established where and when Middle Earth is in relation to us. You know what? My head is hurting trying to think of this. I'm sorry. This is... my, My brain is spinning and I'm not progressing at all in trying to expand on that idea. So we're going to explain in a little bit why we chose these books. But before we do that, why don't you talk about your selection have Spacesuit Will Travel by Robert Heinlein. First of all, the title is a takeoff of a television series at the time. Which I loved. Have Gun Will Travel? Yes. With, uh, what's his name? Richard Boone. Yes. Terrific show. The title comes from the advertisement that this gunslinger for hire would put in newspapers. And it's a good premise for a show because he's traveling all over the place, meeting new people all the time. So Heinlein was playing off of that title. And so as a kid in a small town, this was like my first favorite book. Stories about an 18-year-old kid who wants to go to the moon. And then he sees a contest, a slogan writing contest. The first prize of which is a trip to the moon. Now he does not win. He ends up getting a consolation prize, which is a used and stripped out spacesuit that in the book says was actually used to help build the space station. And being interested in all things engineering, he refurbishes the suit. Gets a completely working order. There's a full chapter in which Heinlein describes all the potential problems and how to solve them. It gets a little bit into the weeds, a little bit show-offy by Heinlein, but we'll forgive him. And then, no coincidence at all, he is in a pasture in his spacesuit with fully charged oxygen bottles. A note left at home saying he won't be back for a few days, and a spaceship lands in the field. A flying saucer, basically. Yes. 
and being chased by another flying saucer. What it was is a human and an alien just escaped from a different alien's base on the moon, and they have landed on Earth. Just coincidentally right next to a kid with a fully functioning spacesuit. Heinlein tries his best to cover up the coincidental aspect of it, and even brings it up again right at the end of the book. But it is basically a huge, huge coincidence. And if this is not too much of a side note, the rule I always went by was you are allowed one coincidence which gets the story started. But the coincidence of meeting this flying saucer is a huge, huge coincidence. Of all the places on Earth where they could have crash-landed, they literally crash-land right in front of him. He does say that there's some radio communications and they home in, but that's still, you know, they got within a couple miles to begin with. Right. So he gets kidnapped by the bad aliens, and the other two are recaptured by them, and then the adventure begins. So he gets taken up to the moon. They have an adventure on the moon escaping. And then the bad guys take them to Pluto, where there's a nice sequence of him freezing to death there. And then the good aliens show up, rescue everyone. And when you think the book is over, we get several chapters of being in the good aliens land, where the good aliens have decided to judge both of the alien races, humans and the bad aliens. When did... Heinlein write this book? When was this book published? 1961. It was his last children's book for Scribner. Okay, so I don't know whether this was before or after judging the human race became a trope, but I definitely remember some movies and TV shows that had the human race being judged by some highly intelligent aliens. Day the Earth Stood Still. Well, yeah, okay, good one, yeah. Kip makes an impassioned speech which saves the Earth. Then they get returned to Earth, and he gets his college scholarship, and everyone gets medals, I think. Hooray. Good guys win. Getting the main character into the story through a contest was used more than once. A kid wins a trip in Arthur C. Clarke's Islands in the Sky, and the kid says, I want to go to the space station. And then off he goes on an adventure. Gets kidnapped by aliens, right? Probably. (laughs) For a 10-year-old is a fantastic story. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's also very libertarian in places. It is. I I didn't read the whole thing. I only started it, so I missed that part of it. One of the things that I found interesting was the character of the kid's father, who is a brilliant scientist, and he's the classic uh, John W. Campbell Robert Heinlein, competent man, where he's very brilliant. He lives off the grid to some degree. For instance, they have a TV set, but they never use it. Which is kind of an elitist notion that people love to do. Right. And he basically imparts the message to his son, well, if you want something, you have to go work for it, and I'm not going to help you. You know, classic competent man. And the father had a characteristic or two that would border on what we would call sovereign citizenship today the thing with the taxes oh yeah yeah he goes on an anti-tax rant at one point it's clearly Heinlein speaking through that character yeah and maybe because it was the 12th he had relaxed enough to put more of himself into wasn't it the last of his juveniles it was his 12th juvenile for Scribner's there was another one that he wrote Space Cadet 
which was turned on by them and published by someone else. As Starship Troopers, I believe. I think so. Yes. So the reason that we picked these two books today is for each of us, these books that we selected were important books in our development. For me, as crazy as it sounds, Tarzan at the Earth's Core was one of the most important books I ever read. The reason that it was important, not anything to do with the inherent quality of the book itself, it was a fun adventure, a little crazy, but not too far out, a ton of fun. What happened for me when I encountered this book for the first time, I happened to be staying with my Uncle Carl, my Aunt Margaret, for a month while my parents took their first trip to Scotland. And there was a day where my cousin Carl Jr., who was my age, had summer school. So I was all alone and I was bored and I was looking for things to do. And my Uncle Carl had an amazing collection of paperback books, a huge collection of paperback books. In their family room, there was a floor-to-ceiling bookcase on three walls filled with paperbacks of all varieties, spy novels, war novels, westerns, science fiction, you name it. And I was browsing through there, and I came across the title, Tarzan at the Earth's Core. And I pulled the book off the shelf, and it had a picture of Tarzan facing off against the Tyrannosaurus Rex on the front cover. And that was all I needed. It was like, okay, Tarzan and dinosaurs, I'm in. I sat down, I started reading it, and it was a classic example where I didn't stop reading it until I'd read the whole thing in like five hours. I love the book. Like I said, it was tremendously fun. The reason that the book is so important is it introduced me to Edgar Rice Burroughs. And fortunately, my Uncle Carl had a whole bunch of Edgar Rice Burroughs paperbacks. And just as a side note, this is just me being a little nerdy. In the 1960s, two companies fought for the rights to Edgar Rice Burroughs novels, Ace Books and Ballantyne. Ace Books actually published unauthorized versions of Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan books and his other series, like the Pellucidar books and the Mars books, the Venus books, you name it. And they got into some legal trouble with the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate. They worked out a deal where Ace would get the Pellucidar books, the Venus books, and Ballantyne would get Tarzan and the Mars books. By the way, they did the same thing with the Lord of the Rings. Ace put out an unauthorized version in paperback of Lord of the Rings. They were sued by Tolkien, and they were forced to have to drop it. And that actually forced Tolkien to agree to have a paperback version of the books put out by Ballantyne. So Ballantyne and Ace were fighting back and forth over the rights of a number of different properties in the 1960s. So I read some more of the Pellucidar books. I read some other Edgar Rice Burroughs books, fell in love with Edgar Rice Burroughs, and was such a fan that at some point in the future after that, I picked up a copy of a book called Master of Adventure by Richard Lupoff. This was a biography of Edgar Rice Burroughs, went into a lot of detail about all of his book series and, and everything. And it also had a chapter called The Descendants of Tarzan, which was all of the characters that he thought were influenced by Tarzan later on. One of those characters was the character of Conan the Barbarian, which I had not heard of at that point. I went out and I checked into Conan, and guess what? I fell head over heels in love with Conan, not only the books, but also the comic books drawn by Barry Windsor Smith. And that began the ball rolling. I went from Conan 
to other fantasy works. I discovered the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series of the 1970s. I started to read some science fantasy like Jack Vance. I followed up on all of the great Weird Tales authors like H.P. Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith, and it opened up this wide world of fantasy for me that was extremely important in my teen years. So that book is always going to be close to my heart, not only because I love the book itself and it was Tarzan fighting dinosaurs, but because of the important effect it had on me going forward. Now, you've always, in your reading, leaned more towards fantasy than science fiction. Well, up until that point, I didn't. I was not much of a fantasy reader before I read Tarzan at the Earth's Core. I think I might have read The Hobbit, possibly. I read a lot of mythology books. When I was very young, I read the Oz books, and those are fantasy, basically. But that was it. I had not read much fantasy. I started out science fiction, kind of morphed from there into horror. So at the time that I picked this book up, I was really more into horror than anything else. This was the book that really opened the door for fantasy for me. You bring up something I've always thought was interesting. Many, many writers go through phases of reading where they absorb everything they can in a genre, and it's like completely unrelated to what they will eventually be writing. I remember I went through a period of reading every fairy tale I could get my hands on. I don't know why my brain decided it really wanted to learn all of them. But I think it helped with the beginnings of learning plotting. That was definitely my pattern. Like I said, once I started looking into fantasy, that's all I read for like a year or more. I just consumed it. And I was an avid reader. So I was normally, during the summer, I would go to the library, come home with an armful of books, read them all in one week, and then go back the next week and drop them off and get another armful of books and start it all over. So I was reading tons of books at the time, and I devoured fantasy in a huge chunk. I've done that with other types of books over the years as well. Like I said, when I was very young, I read every mythology book I could get my hands on. I'd go to the local library or the school library, and every book they had on mythology, it didn't matter what country it was from or anything, I'd read all of them, all in a huge burst. Now, there are some lessons in plotting. Well, you know, if you have plots where the god turns himself into a swan and impregnates a woman so that she can give birth to Hercules or whatever. That was a myth? I thought that was a Star Trek episode. (laughs) So I lived less than a block from the library. I remember going up there and checking out like one or two books, taking them home and immediately just tearing into them. These were young adult books. Yeah, I didn't read a lot of young adult books. I kind of skipped that phase for the most part. For me, they were the ones I devoured. I read some series that I'm surprised I read that you wouldn't think a 10-year-old boy would be interested in. But in our library, they had a room for children's books, a room for adult books, a reading room with some more adult books in there, and an area that was a complete afterthought, literally the size of a large closet. That's where they put all the middle reader books. I had the exact same experience at the uh, public library in Antioch, Illinois. They had, like you said, a whole big children's section, obviously a big adult section, and a little corner, a little corner of middle reader books. And I read from one end to the other. Obviously, we've talked about some series that you know that I've read, the uh, Three Investigators. Which I love, too. The Boxcart Children. Yep. 
which I don't remember anything about, but I know I read them. That was a very popular series uh, when I was a kid. I'm a little embarrassed to admit that I read the entire Little House on the Prairie series because I loved the frontier life in there. Mm-hmm. As an adult, I went back and paged through and thought how I must have skipped over so much, <laughs> so much, um, would I be offensive if I said girly stuff? Well, it is kind of a girl's book. That's the way they were in those days. We've talked about Baby Island, oh, the, yes. the, the classic book about two young girls stranded on a desert island with a bunch of babies and they have to take care of the babies. That's the way things were back in those days. I think literally the scholastic catalog that you would get that would have all the books in it would be like blue section for boys and then like a pink section for girls. The girls' books would be Amy Gets a Family. And the boys' books would be Bob Becomes a Scientist, Goes to War and Kills People. (laughs) The Young Boy's Guide to Fixing Radios. Yes. (laughs) The girls' books would be like cookbooks and How to Do Needlepoint. I occasionally find one and I send you a photo of the cover because there, some of them are so unbelievable. Yeah. When I ran across Baby Island, I was staggered. That was amazing. You know, I think everybody probably has similar experiences maybe where there's that one book that they read that either turned them into a lifelong reader or it turned them into a science fiction fan or it exposed them to a higher level of literature. They moved away from middle reader books into adult books. I didn't really have that experience. I kind of bypassed the middle reader section for the most part and moved right straight into the adult library. I think what grabbed me most about Have Space Who Will Travel, it is essentially a story about a competent boy. You mentioned... Yeah, a wannabe competent man. Yes. He, he yearns to become a competent man. And he's going to by grit and determination. Right. Growing up, I didn't have a lot of resources, so I was used to the idea that if I wanted something or had something broken, I either had to fix it myself or make it myself. You've commented on how much I'm drawn towards puzzle solving in science fiction books. I don't know if this book turned me in that direction or if I already was there, but that was the connection, that this book was perfect for 10-year-old me. You know, that resonates with me in my childhood because my gang of friends and I were always building stuff. We were building forts. We were trying to build go-karts. We've talked before about Estes rockets and our experience with that. It was a very common thing for boys back in our day to have projects, to build things. When you got your friends together and you got an idea, the first thing was, okay, okay, we need a bunch of sticks and some wheels can of gasoline. Wheels were a problem. When we were trying to build go-karts, I think it took the wheels off of a baby carriage. And I think whoever did that got in trouble. But that was the kind of thing you were doing. You were like, okay, what are our resources? What do you have in your dad's garage? And we'd go over to their house and we'd go through their garage looking for materials that could be used in whatever project we were working on. Of course, we were in small towns. It's a little bit different. That may have had a lot to do with it. So it was partly scavenging, which in itself was fun and exciting, doing all that scavenging. Creative problem solving. Teamwork. Building a team and working together as a team. Assigning tasks to members of the team. Look at all that groundwork that we were laying back in those days when we were like nine years old. Preparing to be drafted into the next war. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we played Army, so, you know, we were already working on our tactics and so forth. 
I was driving through the country yesterday, and we drove past this country house that had all these old rusty farm implements in their front yard. And they had this one that was like a thresher that had a seat on it, you know, like a molded seat. Like the old metal tractor seats. Yeah, like a tractor seat. And I said, hey, we had one of those in a field where I lived, and that was our tank. So we'd play army, and one of us would be up on the seat of this old thresher, pretending that we were driving a German tank, and then the other guys had to assault the tank and take it out with a bazooka or grenades or whatever. You know, And that's the sort of thing. That, that was a big part of my childhood, was tactics and team building. Mine was making things out of very little, and always having that list in the back of your head as you go around town looking for stuff. I was once dating someone, and the county grounds at the time had this huge area with paved roads that were no longer used because the institutes that they went to were gone. So we go in there, I back up into a place, and we're dating. And in the middle of everything, I look up and I see a piece of playground equipment. It had been dumped, so it was like all bent up. It had a part on it that I desperately wanted. (laughs) And it was very hard not to get it right then and there. But you came back later and got it. Yes. Of course you did. (laughs) So this is our main point here, I guess, is that reading and finding a special book at a special moment is so important to the development of you as a person. And that was certainly true in my case. I think it accelerated my interest in being a writer because suddenly I was no longer just writing H.P. Lovecraft pastiches, horror stories. I was now expanding into writing Conan pastiches. I was writing Edgar Rice Burroughs pastiches. I was writing all of these very derivative pieces of fiction in my teenage years, but it was different kinds of writing, and that embedded the idea of being a serious writer and also embedded the idea of having a broad range of stuff that I wanted to write. And that really laid the foundation for me as a writer. My perspective on these books was that they were opening up a world I didn't know existed. And it was so great, I wanted to become part of the world, which means writing your own stories. Yeah, I think that's the way I felt too. So that brings us to a very special announcement that we're going to be making here. This is going to be our last podcast. Steve and I have discussed it and given the fact that each of us has a lot on our plate going forward in terms of other projects that we felt that we wouldn't be able to commit to doing the show in the way that we've been doing it at the level of quality that we've been doing it at. And we didn't want to sacrifice the quality of the show or even the frequency of the show. We felt it was very important to come out every week, and we're proud that we did. We came out every week. We never missed a week. So I'm sorry to say that this will be the last episode of Unknown Orbits. For me personally, what I'm moving on to is I will be launching a Substack. By the time this airs, the uh, Substack will have been launched. It'll be under the name of Beatnik Spy. So if you go to Substack and you type in Beatnik Spy, you should pull up my Substack. It's going to be devoted to the history of genre media. That includes books and television and movies, and I will be talking about a lot of different interesting things. Some of the material that I will be writing articles about will be 
coming out of the research that we did for this show. Some of the topics that we covered on this show, I may go into more detail on. I also, probably by the time this comes out, will have published the sequel to my military science fiction novel, The Nowhere Navy, called The Epsilon Passage. That will be out on Black Friday. And then, of course, once I've published Epsilon Passage, I'm going to be getting to work on a brand new type of novel. I'm going to be working on a crime novel over the winter. So I've got my plate full. Steve, you got your plate full. What's going on with you going forward? One thing I really like about this podcast is that it has reinvigorated my desire to read and write science fiction. In addition to that, I have started becoming interested in another genre of fiction. So currently, my plans are I'm writing short stories in both genres. They will all be under my name. I am, frankly, sick and tired of fucking around with pseudonyms. (laughs) And even though these stories are different genres, I don't care anymore. Everything's going to be under my name. So I make no promises, and I don't have a lot of detail to give you. I did want to make the point, though, that this year plus of rereading and examining and discussing science fiction has brought it back to life for me. And for that alone, I'm glad that we've done this podcast. Yeah, I feel the same way. As I've said many times on the podcast, you were the science fiction fan. I was the former science fiction fan, and I was also reintroduced to the genre. I don't think I would have written The Nowhere Navy and The Epsilon Passage if it hadn't have been for this podcast. And of course, many of the works that I read over the last year or so were influential on my writing. And there's things in the future that I would like to write that I model myself on some of these writers that I've really come to like. So I'm excited about the journey ahead. We're not going to close the door 100% completely on the podcast. We may decide in six months to do a couple special episodes, perhaps, to add to the collection. You know, we can always just get together on a weekend and just record a few podcasts. If we feel it's worth our time, it's always possible. I will say that our podcast will remain available on all of your favorite platforms. At some point, we may archive them, but they will definitely always be available at unknownorbits.com. And if you'd like to send us either post a comment or send us an email on what aspects of the show you liked. For example, if we were to come back in a few months and do some more, I would lean more towards the minisodes. They're fun. Those are fun. Those are easy to do. I think people do like them. Any other thoughts on the podcast before we say goodbye? You know, I think we've covered it as well as we can. I agree. All right, that's it for episode 56 and the podcast. I'm Patrick Baird. I'm Steve Reitze. Keep watching the sky. That's all for today. Pat and I thank you for listening and invite you to come back for the next episode of Unknown Orbits. Two guys from Milwaukee.